you find me, I just stabbed somebody with an ice pick. I can't stop myself. I keep killing somebody. Welcome back to the Rainy Day Horror Show, people. It's Sunday. It's 5 o'clock in the afternoon. The Vikings fucking lost, I think. I don't know. When I Last time I checked, they were down by 6 points, 7 points. But who cares, right? It's just me and you talking about serial killers. It is Serial Killer Sunday. Everybody, round of applause. <laughs> round of applause. The first edition of Serial Killer Sunday. It's going to be a good one. Right, we're starting off strong. We're starting with Minnesota, my home state, the state that I reside in, right? But I don't know. It's going to be a good fucking episode. I am fucking hyped. I am psyched. I am ready to fucking rip shit apart, right? If you don't know who I am, I'm Dusty McBalls. I am the certified cougar hunter and I am your host with the most and like I said 10 seconds ago we've got a good fucking episode we're going to be talking about Paul Michael Stephanie aka the weepy voiced killer now this man this man's kind of a bitch not gonna lie he's kind of a bitch and I know this is my hometown this is my home state and these are my home people but so is the Minneapolis Police Department I'm sorry I said it right But from what I read and what I've, you know, researched is they didn't, they ended up getting the FBI involved with this and we'll cover, but they didn't really fucking need to, right? But it's, we're, it's going to be a good episode, okay? So sit back, relax. If you're not from Minnesota, slip them adventure crocs on and, you know, fucking come here. It's a beautiful state. It's cold as fuck, but it is a beautiful state. Literally, just burped. Not this weekend. Not this week, sorry. But next week, it's about to be cold. It's about to be cold for my fellow Minnesotans. It's going to not be fun. It's going to be like, I saw last week, the warmest day I think is 12 degrees. Shit's going to fucking suck. And we have maybe, let me look outside here real quick, not even a full fucking inch of snow on the ground in January, that is unheard of. We're supposed to have at least four feet right now, but we don't, right? The kids, they're not getting, you know, those snow days, right? I'm not getting a snow day, so, you know, so I have to go to fucking work, right? I wish it would just dump a shit ton of snow on us so I don't have to go to fucking work, you know? It would be nice, right? It would be nice to just sit back, relax, and just kick it one day, you know? Fucking watch some dope-ass serial killer fucking true crime documentaries on the Flixnet or Netflix for you weirdos that like to correctly pronounce names. But yeah, it's going to be a good episode. It's going to be fucking fun. So sit back, relax, get something to drink, get a fucking snack. I don't know. Get goldfish. Goldfish are top tier fucking snack, right? Go get them. Also, if you haven't tried the ranch chicken and a biscuit... Try them bitches too. Those fuckers are so fucking good. I love them. But let's get into this story, okay? So, Paul Michael Stephanie, a.k.a. the Weepy Voiced Killer, was born on September 8th, 19... 
44 in Austin, Minnesota, which is like an hour and a half southeast of where I'm at. It's a little bit in the boonies, not going to lie. It's a big town, but there's really nothing fucking around it. Now, Paul was born into a very religious and large family, and he was the second of ten siblings. First off, why are all the weird religious people, no disrespect to my, you know, fellow religious um, personnel, but holy shit, a lot of these fucking serial killers, it's always the fucking Christians, right? It's always the Christians and the priests that do weird shit. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to say it, but I'm going to say it, right? You got serial killers, Christians, and you also got fucking pedophiles, which are uh, Christians, the priests, touching little boys. I don't know what y'all got infused with when you were being made into coming into this earth, but like, can we please take a step back and look at, you know, our surroundings, all right? I don't know what the fuck's going on, my fellow religious Christian people. Y'all gotta check your shit out. I'm sorry. I had to say it, alright? I know a lot of people are thinking it, but I had to say it. And I apologize if I hurt your feelings. But, you know, just gotta take it down a notch, alright? Check your people. Make sure that they're semi-normal, okay? We're not all normal, but, you know, just, just check to see if they're, you know... Semi-normal. Now, Paul had that typical serial killer childhood growing up. His stepfather was allegedly extremely abusive and would beat Paul and his siblings. And he would even sometimes allegedly throw them down the stairs, which is a game I like to call offspring tossing. It's where you just grab your children and you throw them down the stairs to see how many bones they could break. Also, for the record, um, from all the sources that I looked at, it didn't really say if he was bullied in school or not, but I'm just going to assume and say that it's safe that he was. Because, you know, say it with me, typical serial killer shit. Once the mid-1960s hit, according to the Star Tribune, Paul decided to move to St. Paul slash Minneapolis because they're so fucking close. Literally, the only thing that divides them is the Mississippi River. So, they're very, very close together. And Paul began working as a shipping clerk and janitor. And also at this point, he ended up briefly getting married to Beverly Leiter. I think that's how you pronounce her last name. And they eventually had a daughter together. But, from what I could find... They ended up getting a divorce because two sources are kind of, um, what is it, contradicting each other. People said that they got a divorce, but people said that they had to break things off because she is from Syria and she had a fucking arranged marriage. So I don't know which one's which. I had so many sources saying so many different things, so just want to put that out there. One of the two is correct, okay? One of the two is correct. And after they got divorced and Paul basically abandoned his daughter because the daughter went with the mom, well, because Paul was also, I assume, a dick, 
Um, Paul's violent and serial killer tendencies started to materialize into the real world. Like most serial killers, Paul had a very normal appearance on the outside. And to most people that knew Paul would say that he was a devout Catholic. But under his little fleshy pink skin, Paul had some dark shit. He had some very dark and disturbing thoughts that constantly plagued him. After Paul was captured, I'm fast forwarding a little bit. After Paul was captured, he would claim that before every assault that he committed, he would hear tiny little voices in the back of his head telling him to attack. Although the voices in his head allegedly told him to kill and take the souls of his innocent victims, some experts believe that his religious guilt is what drove him to call the police crying while he, res- while he reported his own crimes. Yes, Paul was a little bitch, right? He wasn't up there, right? He wasn't up to the Ted Bundys, the Jeffrey Dahmers, the Ed Geans, the John Wayne Gacy's. No, 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 no. Paul wasn't like that. Paul was different. Paul killed women, right? Mutilated their corpses, left them naked on the Mississippi Bank River. Well, the bank of the Mississippi River, right? And he was so sad. All he wanted to do was get into heaven. And that's why he called. He called, just crying, crying, telling them about the heinous shit that he has done. Paul once even told reporters and police, there was someone telling me it's time to kill Paul. Sorry, not someone. There was something telling me it's time to kill Paul. He also at one point cried over the phone to the dispatcher saying, I'll never make it into heaven. Charlie, shut up. Lay down. Sorry, I got my grandpa's dog with me. Gotta watch him. He likes to attack other dogs. And I didn't want to leave him down there with my other dogs. Just in case, you know, something bad happens. Something nasty happens. A little chomp chomp, right? We don't want that. I don't want my dogs dead. Because if my dogs are dead, then I have to deal with being yelled at. And I don't want to be yelled at, right? I get yelled at enough by Gabby. We know this, okay? I don't want to deal with that. Now, Paul Michael Stephanie, not Stephanie, Stephanie officially started his serial killer killings in 1981 when a group of teenagers were playing in a field near a freeway in St. Paul. Now, as these kids were just playing, having fun, being innocent, they eventually happened to come across and discover a body of a young woman on June 3rd, 1981. She had suffered severe wounds to her chest, stomach, and thighs. When the cops came to, you know, come and pick up the body and send it to the medical examiner, the coroner, or whatever, it was determined that the female victim was stabbed over 60 times with an ice pick. St. Paul PD Sergeant Joe 
Cochran would come out and say, you know, some shit about this murder. And what he said was that it's a very unusual to you. It's well, not hold on back up. It's very unusual to use an ice pick to kill someone. It's the mark of a killer. This female victim would be later identified as 18-year-old Kimberly Compton. She was a recent high school graduate who had moved to the Minneapolis and St. Paul area from Wisconsin, and she was in search of a job literally the same day she was fucking murdered. She came to Minnesota, got in her apartment or house, decided to go out, you know, after just arriving, trying to look for a job. Next thing you know, Paul Michael Stephanie comes up with an ice pick, stabs her 60 fucking times, right? That's the kind of welcome you get in Minnesota, people, if you ever want to come here, right? Everybody gets poked at least 60 times. It's happened to me. It's happened to my girlfriend. It's happened to my brothers, my parents. It's just ha- it's just a thing, right? It's a little initiation, right? Minnesota nice. That's what they really talk about, right? We're so nice that we end up stabbing you 60 times with a fucking knife or an ice pick or a screwdriver, wherever the fuck we feel like stabbing you with. I'm just kidding. That's, that's not a joke. But Minnesota nice is actually a fake thing. I'm going to give you guys a little, little tidbit of the meaning of Minnesota nice. Minnesota nice is not nice whatsoever. Okay. It is a fake nice. It is a, it is a nice that is basically will be your friend and will find everything out about you and then we'll talk shit about you behind your back to our family members and our other neighbors and they won't say anything to you. You know the one scene in Edward Scissorhands where Eddie is kind of like freaking out and he's like chopping stuff up and everything and then the next day all of the women on his block get together in front of their house and they start talking shit about Eddie Mr. Scissorhands, yeah, that's basically what it is. It's literally what it is. Minnesota nice is not a nice thing, okay? It's like, it's the equivalent to a southern bless your heart, okay? It's a silent fuck you is what it is, right? I'm sorry. I know we seem nice, but don't, don't give in to that. Don't give in to that, all right? Now, at the time of Kimberly's murder... Um, investigators, well, invest, hold on. Now, at the time of Kimberly's murder, investigators found zero clues or evidence suggesting who could have done this heinous crime. But 48 hours later, the police would get an anonymous phone call from the weepy voiced killer himself saying, I don't know why I stabbed her. I'm so upset about it. Now, in the beginning of this phone call, the police thought it was just a prank call. But the killer had said one detail that really changed their minds and made their blood run cold. Later on, in that exact same conversation, Paul had stated to the police that... I just stabbed her with an ice pick. Don't talk, just listen. I'm sorry what I did to Compton. I couldn't help it. Don't know why I had to stab her. 
I'm so upset about it. I keep getting drunk every day, and I can't believe it. It's like a big dream. I can't think of being locked up. If I get locked up, I'll kill myself. I'd rather kill myself than get locked up. I'll try not to kill anybody else. Sergeant Cochran would also come out and say, regarding the phone call, that only the killer would have known that he used an ice pick because we didn't share that information with the media. Now, while Paul was calling the authorities and telling them how bad he felt, the police tried to trace the call, but it was just too short and they didn't have enough time to trace it back to where he was calling from. However, just a few hours later, Paul would make another phone call to the police station, and this time they were able to trace his call to a bus depot phone booth, and on the phone, Paul told police, Don't say anything. Just listen. I'm sorry for what I did to Compton. I couldn't help it. I can't think of getting locked up. If I, get, if I get locked up, I will kill myself. I'll try not to kill anybody else. Fire emergency. Please don't talk to listen. I'm sorry I killed that girl. I stabbed her 40 times. Kimberly Compton was the first one. Oh, my chief. Oh, I don't know what's the matter me. I'm sick. I'm going to kill myself, I think. Where are you? I'm just going to... There's so many guys with a red kid on. It's me. I killed all the After the call had ended, police quickly rushed to the bus depot to see if they could find Paul. Once the police had arrived at, you know, said bus depot, they couldn't find any sign of Paul or any suspicious persons lurking around the bus depot. So they immediately started asking witnesses in the immediate area if they saw anyone using that phone booth. But unfortunately, every person that they asked, every person that they went to, didn't see anything, right? They don't know who they were talking about. And it was as if he was never even there and just vanished. Once the cops had arrived back at the station, they started seeing if they could match his voice with any other phone calls that had come in that were related to any other unsolved cases since, you know, that was his thing. He would call in and report his own murders, stuff like that. So they thought, you know, being smart little detectives, they thought, oh, let's just go back through the call log. Now, as they were going through the phone call, or the phone call log and tracing everything back, they ended up making a huge discovery. Just five months earlier, on New Year's Day, 1981, at 3 a.m., someone had made a call begging for assistance with the same weepy voice. The man on the phone had asked the police to send a squad car and an ambulance 
to Malmberg Manufacturing Company and Machine Shop, which is where Paul worked. Yes, please, this is an emergency. Please send a squad to Pierce Butler Road, Malmberg Manufacturing Company, Machine Shop. Please, there's an ambulance, too. There's a girl hurt there. Can you tell me what happened to her? Just hurry, she's laying on the ground in the back by the by the railroad tracks, by the engine. What's the address? I don't know. Who are you? When the first responders arrived at the machine shop, they found a 20-year-old college student named Karen Potak. And Paul literally had beaten her to death and then stripped her naked and left her on a snowbank on the Mississippi River. When the cops arrived and identified Karen's body, they had noticed that she had multiple wounds to her neck area, leaving her brain fully fucking exposed. And I know I said, like, beat her to death. I didn't mean, like, he he didn't beat this one to death, okay? But he beat her, like, to death. Like, figure of, um, it's a figure of speech. That's the word. He didn't really beat her to death, but she was very, very close. And I don't know what universe or what, like, fucking gods that look over her. She's so fucking lucky that she didn't die. But even though she had survived the whole ordeal, unfortunately, she had experienced severe brain damage and remembered nothing of her violent assault. Now, since Karen couldn't remember who her attacker was, or what he looked like, or any description on him from that incident, the investigators decided to release a portion of that phone call to the public, urging anyone with any information to come forward. But unfortunately, no one was able to identify Paul's voice, and the case basically went cold for more than a year. And thankfully, you know, it didn't stay cold. It re-picked back up again because on the morning of August 6th, 1982, a paper boy was doing his normal routine deliveries, delivering papers to the local families. And on this delivery route that he was, you know, his delivery route that he basically did every day, I'd assume, he happened to spot a woman's body along the bank of the Mississippi River. And according to the MSPD detective Don Brown, she was beaten and stabbed. The wounds on her body were circular. They could have been made with a Phillips screwdriver or an ice pick. It was the mark of a killer. And as Detective Brown surveyed the rest of the crime scene, his crime scene, he was also able to determine that this wasn't the first time this person has killed. This woman would later be identified as 40-year-old nurse Barbara Simons. Now, with very little to go on, the detectives headed back to the station to try and figure out out if this crime was somehow related to the other women who have been popping up dead over the past couple of years. 
And as they were trying to piece things together, two days later, after Barbara was found dead, the authorities received another bone-chilling phone call. On this phone call, Paul said to the police department in his crying, whiny bitch voice that, I'm sorry I killed that girl. I stabbed her 40 times. Kimberly Compton was the first one over in St. Paul. I killed more people. I'll never make it into heaven. Then Paul hung up. And after Paul hung up, the Minneapolis Police Department realized that they had a serial killer on their hands. So, being the smart individuals that they are, they decided to contact the FBI so that they could help assist them in taking down this serial killer. Kimberly Masnick. Profile for the FBI was assigned to the weepy-voiced killer's case, and she theorized that during the calls, Paul was going into a juvenile state and that he's crying out. She also suggested that he's playing a serious game of cat and mouse. Now, while she was, Kimberly, was trying to set a profile for the killer to release to the public... Barbara's loved ones started talking to investigators on the night she was killed. They told them that Barbara went to the Hexagon Bar in Minneapolis and that the bartender and waitress saw Barbara talking to an unidentified white man. This unidentified white man was Paul Michael Stephanie. Investigators were also told by the witnesses at the bar that Barbara told the waitress, I hope this guy's okay because I need a ride home. Now, after they questioned the waitress and the bartender at the Hexagon Bar, detectives decided to dig through mugshots of certain offenders with a history of A- singular violent assault or multiple violent assaults, okay? And they were able to narrow it down to eight possible suspects that matched the description that was given to them from the witnesses at the Hexagon Bar. And one of those eight suspects was Paul Michael Stephanie because when he was dating, when he was first originally quote-unquote married, he did do time for violently assaulting a woman, and he did get charged with it. I left it out in the beginning because it kind of flowed in better here, but at one point he did get arrested for assaulting a female, right? Detective Brown then showed the bartender and the waitress these eight mugshots, and guess what? Guess what? Both the waitress and the bartender picked out Paul's mugshot. So, after this semi-big, well, yeah, semi-big breakthrough, the police started to do a little digging into Paul's, into Paul's history and his background. And what they found made their blood run cold and 
made Paul their main suspect. The police were able to find out that Paul worked at the Malmberg Manufacturing Company and that's where his victim, Karen Potak, was attacked on New Year's Day and with this new sense of direction from this huge clue these detectives had found, they decided to set up a surveillance team outside of Paul's apartment complex on August 21st, 1982. And one of the following days, Paul decided to, you know, leave his house. And as he left his house, the surveillance team started to follow him to Minneapolis. And as they were following him, unfortunately, at some point during the tailing, they lost him. But it wasn't over. Because thankfully, to a little bit of, you know, that liquid luck, several hours later, after Paul reportedly left his house, the police got a call from a man saying that he just witnessed a woman getting stabbed with a screwdriver and that the caller attempted to intervene, but the suspect, aka Paul Michael Stephanie, threatened him and then fled the scene in his car. First responders doing what they do, quickly hopped in their squad cars and the ambulances and rushed to the scene. Once the authorities arrived, they found 21-year-old Denise Williams, a sex worker who had been stabbed 13 times by Paul. She told the police that the suspect had offered to drive her home, and as they were heading to her house, Paul pulled over onto the side of the road somewhere in East Minneapolis. Once Paul had pulled over, he then opened up his glove box and pulled out a screwdriver and started stabbing Denise. And as Denise was being stabbed, she had found a glass bottle within Paul's car and smashed it across his face, giving him a nasty cut and allowing her to flee him and go find help. Police then showed Denise the mugshots and she identified Paul as the man who stabbed her. Now, not long after Denise's attack, another call came in from a man saying, I need help. Or sorry, not I need help. I need an ambulance. I'm all caught up. Cut up, not caught up. I'm all cut up. I got beat up and I'm bleeding. This man that happened to call the police was Paul Michael Stephanie. And once the police started connecting the dots, they then realized that this is their guy and they went to his residence and placed him under arrest and brought him to the station for some good old-fashioned interrogation. During Paul's interrogation, he denied all allegations that were brought upon him, and he also claimed 
that he was the victim of a robbery and just rob well it was a robbery and what is it fuck there was another thing there was another thing that he said and i forgot to put it down and now i'm upset it was a robbery and another thing and these you know detectives i know i said they're stupid in the beginning they're kind of stupid that like i don't know i'm gonna retract that statement they're not stupid they really didn't need to get the fucking well they are kind of stupid like why did you get the fbi involved if you found out through you know talking to people like you didn't need to get the fbi involved maybe you just would have worked a little harder Oh, I bet that didn't feel good, did it? Oh, I pissed some people off saying that. Maybe there's a guy that worked this case and he's listening to this right now. He's like, fuck you, Dusty. We did work hard. Well, obviously not hard enough. Sorry. Sorry. Could ask some more questions, but I don't know. Then again, the evidence was pretty shitty, so I don't know. I don't know. That's not for me to decide. That's for you guys to decide. But where are we? But... You know, Detective Brown then decided to show Paul the crime scene photos that he had been getting and collecting over the past couple of years. And according to Detective Brown, Michael Paul Stephanie got up from his seat and said, You're not going to pin those on me. His voice immediately changed and went into a high-pitched voice which right away struck me as the voice I heard on the recordings. Paul was then immediately charged with the assault of Denise and the murder of Barbara Simons. The Ramsey County Attorney's Office would also come out and tell reporters that they believed Paul killed Kimberly and Karen, but... They didn't have enough evidence to support those murders. And they weren't able to connect them to Paul. But thankfully, Paul was eventually convicted of both accounts and was sentenced to 18 years for the attack on Denise and 40 years for the murder of Barbara. Now, the story doesn't end yet, okay? We're, we're, we're getting there, but it's not, it doesn't end yet. Police, so wait, where am I? Now, Paul had always denied the killings and claimed he didn't do it, right? Like every killer, serial killer, I didn't do it, I didn't do it, bullshit, right? We all know it. Trust me, we've seen it on TV and stuff like that. We know, we know, okay? But in 1997, when he was diagnosed with terminal skin cancer, he decided to reach out to the police and he confessed that he did do those murders, and that he murdered another woman. And I say, um, he confessed to what he was charged with, but he also confessed for the murder of Kimberly Compton and the other woman that they couldn't link to him. He said he did those too, right? And then he would also come out and say about another murder that he committed by drowning a woman in her bathtub. And police then spent days looking through a bunch of other case files. And from the details that he had given the police, Paul had given the police, they were able to link him to the murder of Kathleen Greening, 
who was a 30-year-old school teacher who was found dead from drowning in a bathtub on July 21st, 1982. Just a couple months. No, yeah, literally a month after he got, you know, caught, right? But, but, sorry, I had a burp in my throat. But after all of his confessions, thankfully, this cocksucker would die a year later in prison on June 12, 1998 in Oak Park Heights Maximum Security Prison from skin cancer. This cocksucker finally got it. Gosh, what a weirdo. I've never, that's so weird to just like kill somebody and then start crying afterwards. Unless he was playing like a role, like he was faking it, but I don't know. I wasn't there. I wasn't even alive yet. For people that don't know my age, you can, yeah, I just wasn't alive yet. Just wasn't alive. So I can't really relate. You know what I mean? But yeah, it's a good story. I think that was a good way to kick off Serial Killer Sunday. Next week, Oregon, 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 Oregon. We're going with Oregon now. Oregon, it's your turn. I'm going to be looking and I'm going to be searching for a good fucking serial killer. I know you have some. I've already take a, I took a little bit of a gander on the Google to see what you guys got. So I'm excited to see what it is. All right. But yeah. Um... Like I said, you're getting seven videos this week. All week. All different episodes. All going to be fun. You guys should enjoy it. Because I'm going to enjoy it too. Because right? that's all we do over here. I release bangers for your ear holes. Right? And I know you like them. Because I like them. And if I like them, I know you like them. Right? But... That's going to do it for today's episode. I hope you guys have a good rest of your, you know, Sunday. I hope you guys had a good fucking weekend. Right? Didn't party too hard. But, you know, just had fun. That's all I want for you guys to do is just have fun. So, I will see you guys on Tuesday. Yeah, Tuesday. For a short Reddit horror story. And we'll hopefully get through this week, right? Hopefully it'll fly by. So, remember, stay frosty. Stay foxy, and most importantly, the most important thing on this planet, stay safe, you beautiful peacocks. I love y'all. Deuces. (laughs) 